Not all of the few remaining inhabitants of Dahlbergen, that dismal little village in the Ramapo Mountains, believe that my uncle, old Dominie Vanderhoof, is really dead. Some of them believe he is suspended somewhere between heaven and hell because of the old sexton's curse. If it had not been for that old magician, he might still be preaching in the little damp church across the moor. And I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for that old magician. <laughs> I don't think he's referring to, you know, David Copperfield-esque, you know, Doug, <laughs> Doug Henning type magician. Hey, what is Domini? Is that a name? Or Domini? No, no, no. Domini is a, uh, it's a Scott word, Scottish, Scottish English word for schoolmaster uh-huh. or minister. And it, would, oh. it was used by the uh, Church of Scotland, okay. but it also got picked up by Presbyterian churches, would also use them and uh, the Dutch Reformed oh, right. Church. Yeah. So it's a title. It's a title. It means like a minister, basically. And uh, now, what about Chris Lackey? Is, is that a name? Uh, yeah, that's uh, a name. That's my name, actually. Oh, oh glad to meet you. What, what's, uh, what's your name? And my name is Chad Fife. Oh, Chad. Wonderful to hear you again. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. We're here at the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. And that was our reader named Anthony Tedesco. Uh, a guy that we use and abuse quite a bit here on the HP Lovecraft <laughs> Literary Podcast, but he always does such a great job. We have to get him back. And the story is... The story is Two Black Bottles. Two Black Bottles, which was co-written uh, by a friend of, of Lovecraft's. Wilfred Blanche Tallman. Uh, who is he, just briefly? Uh, well, briefly, he was a friend of Lovecraft's, and they only worked together once on this story, uh, but they were friends before he moved to New York, while he moved, uh, while he lived in New York, and then mm-hmm. uh, up until Lovecraft died, they were they were good friends. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll get into more detail about who he is and what, what he was about uh, after yeah, we, yeah. we discuss the story. Now, the, in that opening paragraph, they mentioned the Ramapo Mountains. That's a chain of mountains in the Appalachians in, in northeastern New Jersey. Yep, and um, in New York. It also goes in New, New York. In New York, yeah. And so this is the story takes place in the U.S. Just, despite the reference to the damp church across the moor and and Dominie um, Vander, you know Vanderhoof right. Dominie. Well, Vanderhoof—that's a Dutch name, right? Yes, it is a Dutch name. And like I said, the Dominie was used by the Dutch Reformed Church, so it makes sense. And this story is narrated by Dominie Vanderhoof's nephew, yeah, Hoffman. But and, it, it, they oh, don't mention his name until uh, until later in the story. Oh, really? Like, like a little well, like a little paragraph in when he's talking to uh, the grocery store, uh, Mark yeah. Mark Haynes, the grocery. He says, you know. You should be careful, Hoffman. That's what he says. Oh, wow. See, because I was about to say that I'm so tired of saying when we discuss these you know, unnamed characters in Lovecraft, I'm so tired of saying the protagonist or the narrator, or the protagonist, right. the narrator. I was just going to go ahead and pick a name for him if they don't have one. <laughs> and for this guy, I, I named him Gary Vanderhoof. Uh, <laughs> So <laughs> I just wanted to call him Gary, but if his name's Hoffman, oh, well, I'm going to save well, Gary. They don't say his first name, so it could be Gary Hoffman. Oh, yeah, this is Gary Hoffman. That's right, because <laughs> his uncle's named Vanderhoof, and I believe it's his maternal uncle, so he probably wouldn't have the same name. No, of course not. So his name's Gary Hoffman. Gary Hoffman. So after that first paragraph that we just heard, Gary goes on to say, After what has happened to me in Dahlbergen, I can almost share the opinion of the villagers. I am not sure that my uncle is dead, but I am very sure that he is not alive upon this earth. There is no doubt that the old sexton buried him once, but he is not in that grave now. I can almost feel him behind me as I write, impelling me to tell the truth about those strange happenings in Dahlbergen so many years ago. Mm, sounds like we might yeah. be getting a zombie story. 
Well, here's the basic story. G- Gary was summoned to Dahlbergen by uh, a member of his uncle's congregation. Yes. Whom you've already mentioned, yeah, Mark, Mark Haynes. Um, who told him, hey, your uncle's died, and he's got some inheritance here, an estate that, that you get. So come on out, and I've also got some strange macabre things to discuss with you. Yeah. <laughs> strange <laughs> macabre things. <laughs> <laughs> well, something like that. And so Gary comes out, or Hoffman, and it is yeah. his name. I see now in the reading. Uh, <laughs> Hoffman comes out to meet this guy, Mark Haynes, and Mark says to him, You should be careful, Hoffman, Haynes told me, when you meet that old sexton, Abel Foster. He's in league of the devil, sure as you're alive. Twasn't two weeks ago, Sam Pryor, when he passed the old graveyard, heard him mumbling to the dead there. Twasn't right he should talk that way, and Sam does vow that there was a voice answered him, a kind of half-voice, hollow and muffled-like, as though it had come out the ground. There's others, too, as good tell you about seeing him standing before old Dominique Slot's grave, that one right again the church wall. A ring in his hands and a talking to the moss on the tombstone as though it was the old dominie himself. Oh, so Sexton Foster is talking to tombstones, which is a yeah. little peculiar. Well, that little paragraph in that, that first uh, conversation that Mark Haynes has with him, he, he introduces a lot of characters. Yeah, well, well first of all, a Sexton. A Sexton mm-hmm. is somebody at uh, an office in church that maintains the, the churchyard, the buildings, the graveyard. And right. they also had the duty of ringing the church bells. So they're kind of like a church official, but they're not, you know, clergy. Right. Abel Foster is the sexton of this yeah. church. He also tells him about Dominie Slot, yeah. who we learn in a moment is the first reverend of the church from 1701. A long time um, ago. Slot is dead, and that's apparently who the sexton is talking to in the graveyard. Well, he's talking to his tomb, or his, right. know, his tomb, his tombstone, his grave. Yeah, so, he's mumbling to it. Yeah, he's mumbling to him. And the Sam Pryor, who is never spoken of again, I believe, in the <laughs> right. story, is... Uh, is the one that witnessed it. You know, he's got some yeah. loose lips and likes to gossip, I guess. And in the next little bit of story, we learn that uh, that Abel had come to Dahlbergen about 10 years before to take care of the church. Yeah. And nobody liked him except Vanderhoof. Immediately upon the Sexton's arrival, uh, bad things started to happen to the whole town. It's a mining town, but the mine gave out. There was no more iron. Yeah. So a ton of the families in town had to move away. Uh-huh. And the ones that stay, they just have to do this kind of farming and you know, eke out a living on the land. And things changed for Vanderhoof. He started acting acting differently and people started noticing it and blaming Sexton Foster. Right. Then came the disturbances in the church. It was whispered about that the Reverend Johannes Vanderhoof had made a compact with the devil and was preaching his word in the house of God. His sermons had become weird and grotesque, redolent with sinister things which the ignorant people of Dahlbergen did not understand. He transported them back over ages of fear and superstition to regions of hideous, unseen spirits and peopled their fancy with night-hunting ghouls. Yeah, I don't know. I was never a churchgoer, but if I had that, if that had been going on in my town, I probably would have started actually showing up. That sounds awesome. <laughs> sounds like he's just reading Lovecraft stories, <laughs> you know? Sinners in the hands of an Eric Zahn. You know, there's not enough demons, at least at, at the church that I went to growing up. There wasn't enough... Uh hideous unseen spirits and yeah always wanted that stuff i know that was my big can you please transport me back over some ages of fear (laughs) stop talking about you know being kind to each other yeah i need i need Um, some more i i need to be terrified when i go to sleep (laughs) well people were terrified of uh Dominie Vanderhoof because of the crap that he was talking about but also because you know he's a giant in stature they say he's 
it's pretty well known that he's weak of heart, but he's a big guy. Right. He's a timid. Um, he was a timid man, and all of a yeah. sudden, you know, when he starts hanging out with this Sexton Foster, yeah, he's getting a little, a little strange, a little peculiar. And the villagers are saying, "Hey, could you cut it out?" But he just ignores them. Yep. Keeps uh, doing these kind of sermons, and the town is too poor to send for somebody else. So everybody just stops going to church. Yeah, they just stop going. One of the creepier things is people stop going to the church entirely, and yet they can still hear him on Sunday mornings doing the sermon. Yeah, it's great. Nobody's <laughs> around. Whether he knows that people are there or aren't there, it's hard to say. Hard you to know? say. He's just don't know. Yeah. So Vanderhoof's up there preaching to nobody, and, and Sexton Foster is living in the basement of the church, kind of taking care of him, and, and still taking care of the grounds, yeah. even though nobody's there to appreciate it. And every week, Abel Foster will come into the town for provisions, and he's all old and evil and says weird things to people, and, and they don't like him. the creepy eye. So Hoffman's talking to Mark Haynes, and Mark says, well, one day somebody saw Foster digging a grave. Yeah. And and then the Sexton came into town earlier that week than he normally does, and he was all happy and, and sunshiny, and it was because Vanderhoof had died. Yeah. And this made Foster very happy. And he says to everybody, hey, I buried him next to old Domini Slot out in the churchyard. Yay! <laughs> it's like his parents have gone out of town or something. I can have all the ice cream for me now, you know? <laughs> yeah, he's pretty, he seems pretty excited. And it, they yeah. say he took a perverse and diabolic delight in it. Yeah. Which, yeah. you know, well, I, they seem to be pretty good friends. But that's enough for Hoffman, for our protagonist. He kind of, you know, hears them. He's like, well, I'm going to go. I'm going to go yeah. talk to this uh, the Sexton guy and, you know, get the straight scoop. <laughs> it was, you know, one of my favorite parts is when, because uh, it was after the Sexton was home alone that, that Mark Haynes called Hoffman up and told him to come down. And Hoffman didn't really know his uncle. Uh, yeah, and no. one of my one of my favorite lines in the story is, I assured my summoner, however, that I knew nothing about my uncle or his past. Except that my mother had mentioned him as a man of gigantic physique, but with little courage or power of will. <laughs> Did she say that over breakfast or something? <laughs> Who is that in the photo, Mama? Oh, that's just my brother I've never spoken of. He's freakishly large and total pussy. <laughs> Let's get you to school now and never speak of this again. Uh, but, but you know, as you say, Hoffman's not a wimp. He's a brave guy. No, he's going, I'm, sh- I'm going to go up there and check it out. And then uh, yeah. uh, Haynes... Uh, says mm-hmm. no, don't go up there. Not at night. It's almost night. You shouldn't go. It's it's yeah. dangerous. It's not. And he's like, Psh, whatever. I'm exactly. going. See ya. <laughs> so Mark gives him directions to go out to the churchyard, and and he sends him off saying, "Take care, that old devil Foster. Don't get you." <laughs> There's lots of good uh, get you. Uh, phonetic writing in here and good dialect stuff. So Hoffman travels through the spooky countryside, mm-hmm. past the miasmal vapors of the swamp, you know, and the moor, and. He gets out to the church just as a big fat sun is setting over it. Of course, being a brave man, he still gets a little creeped out by the place. As he gets closer, he sees this brand new white cross out in the churchyard. Yeah. The discovery sent a new chill through me. I realized that this must be my uncle's grave, but something told me that it was not like the other graves near it. It, it did not seem like a dead grave. In some intangible way, it appeared to be living if a grave can be said to live very close to it i saw as i came nearer was another grave an old mound with a crumbling stone about it dominie slot's tomb i thought remembering haynes's story yeah. i thought that was a, a neat piece of writing yeah definitely 
It, it, I mean, it's very. It, it's really setting setting you up for something, obviously, and it gives yeah. something character that you know that you wouldn't normally have. You know, a grave. I, w- I would never have considered a grave being alive, being a living thing. In fact, it's kind of the antithesis of of something that's alive. Yeah, it gets dark really fast, and Hoffman can barely see his hands in front of his face, but he sees that there's some lights in the basement window of the church, and remembering that that's where Foster lives, he assumes he's down there. So he finds a side door to the church. He he, he slides in. When he first comes into the church, he hears this singing that kind of stops and starts ab- abruptly, like a sort of like a drunken singing coming from somewhere. He feels his way along the pews and he gets to the basement door and he knocks. But nobody answers. But, yeah, nobody answers. Silence. So he he does something kind of interesting. He removes the pins from the hinges and pulls the door down and goes yeah, I've in. I've to do that before. That's pretty cool. Of course, it reeks like whiskey in this basement room. <laughs> Man, it's gotta, he's got to be drinking a lot of whiskey for a whole place yeah. to smell like whiskey. Gary, I keep wanting to call him Gary. <laughs> Hoffman says uh, hello, and he hears a little somewhere in the room. So, but when when he looks around, I mean, it's 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 crazy in there. Yeah, my first glance into that unhallowed place was indeed startling. Strewn about the little room were old and dusty books and manuscripts, strange things that bespoke almost unbelievable age. On rows of shelves which reached to the ceiling were horrible things in glass jars and bottles, snakes and lizards and bats. Dust and mold and cobwebs encrusted everything in the center. Behind a table upon which was a lighted candle, a nearly empty bottle of whiskey and a glass, was a motionless figure with a thin, scrawny, wrinkled face and wild eyes that stared blankly through me. I recognized Abel Foster, the old sexton in an instant. He did not move or speak as I came slowly and fearfully toward him. This is a very uh, Lovecraftian you know, room with old books and manuscripts and weird jars and creatures and cobwebs. and you know, right. He's really set, setting the mood up here. And so Gary goes over and he touches Abel's shoulder, which freaks him out. I think Abel kind of goes, you know, he freaks out, wheels around, swinging his arms. He just like, you know, like he's being attacked. He says he could tell that he was both drunk and struck with some kind of a nameless terror. (laughs) (laughs) I've been in that situation a few times. That's a good line. Oh, that guy. Oh, yeah. He's been struck by nameless terror. Yeah, yeah. He, little, yeah. he drank, had a little too much to drink. Too, too much nameless terror. Too much nameless terror. This is what Abel says after he recovers himself for a moment. I thought ye was him, he mumbled. I thought ye was him come back for it. He's been a-trying to get out. A-trying to get out since I put him there. His voice again rose to a scream and he clutched his chair. Maybe he's got out now. Maybe he's out. Maybe he's out. Somebody's out. Hoffman asks him what he's talking about, and Abel says that the cross on Vanderhoof's grave keeps falling down at night. Yeah, just a little bit. It just keeps moving. It's kind of tilting a little further and a little further down. Yeah, and the earth is kind of loose, so he has to repack it every day. <laughs> so uh, it's <laughs> so not good. It's, so it sounds like we got a zombie story going on here. It sounds like sounds you know, he's like, trying to come yeah. back from the grave, but, you know, why? Why is why is the, uh, Dominique Vanderhoof coming back? I don't know. Well, Hoffman obviously wants to know this, too. At right. first, he's a little skeptical, of course, but he looks out the window, and he does see that even in that moment, the cross has moved. It's it's fallen a bit from the position it was when he first approached the church. And the sexton seems sort of resigned at this point and decides, hey, check it out. I'm going to tell you the truth. Yeah. All of these bats and lizards and old books and everything, they belong to Domini Slot. Yeah, he was the first He was the first Domini of the church way back in 17, 1701. 
he brought yeah. this stuff over from the old country and yeah. he was using it to practice black magic black magic and here Sexton makes a little slip. He says, uh, nobody knew that he was practicing the black magic. It was just Dominique Slot and me. And Hoffman. Yeah, he goes, you? And he says, uh, well, you know, after after I learned it, it was me. You know, like he picked up his yeah. books. And, you know, he found the books when he first got the job at the church. And then he. Right. Yeah, not that I was there or anything. Yeah, yeah. No, he wasn't there. I wasn't there. No, 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 no. When I got the job <laughs> 10 years ago, I found all these books and things. And I started reading it. So now I know about this black magic stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. Uh <laughs> It's funny, he even says that he's like, ah, you know, I learned all this stuff when I wasn't at work. It's like, this is his little after work project. <laughs> I got nothing better to do but drink and, and read some old spells. He used to build uh, chips and bottles, but now it's, uh, right. now it's black magic. <laughs> and using the things that he learned, uh, he found that he could use incantations to cast spells over people. And he used these occult rites to call down misery on the town. I don't really know what his motivation was. Yeah, I don't know why he was so uh, hell-bent on the, the townspeople. I don't know what they did to him. And it's never explained what they did to him to make no. him so angry. He's just a jerk. And he brought Vanderhoof under his control, gradually using these incantations. There's a creepy image there. He would stare at Vanderhoof while he gave his sermons through the eyes of the devil in a painting of the temptation of Christ. Yeah, you know? crazy. So while he's up there talking through his sermon, there's just these devil's eyes looking at him through a yeah. painting. Yeah. Oh, a painting. Ugh. So Hoffman says, you had him under your control. What did you do with him? I took his soul, he howled in a tone that set me trembling. I took his soul and I put it in a bottle, in a little black bottle, and I buried him. But he ain't got his soul, and he can't go neither heaven nor hell. But he's a-coming back for it. He's a-trying to get out his grave now. I can hear him pushing his way up through the ground. He's that strong! (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, and this is a great moment because for Hoffman, okay, everything he's saying suddenly makes sense. And he enters that moment of the, the horror protagonist who suddenly goes from reacting to scary things to trying to solve, you know, right. what's going on. And he says, well, can't we dig up Vanderhoof and restore his soul? <laughs> I like how he was skeptical a minute ago. And now he's, <laughs> yeah, well, the old coot's been drinking too much because he says, we can't do that. I forgot the formula, <laughs> which is funny. And, and, uh, and. You know, that guy, that thing's going to get out of there and we'll both be killed. Me and you, because you came out here. He's like, well, f- screw you. Where's, where's the bottle? Give me the bottle. And he's like, I'm not going to tell you. You're not getting that bottle yeah. from me, pal. And he stumbles against the wall to reveal that there's just two black bottles on a stool behind him. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never I'll never tell you where they are. I'll show you by moving out of the way. Oh, golly. And so well, basically, so Hoffman sees it and then and and the sexton sees that he sees it and then they both kind of yeah. go for him and then one of the bottles gets knocked off yeah hoffman gets a little violent it says he he grabs the sexton by the throat he grabs that old man by the throat oh yeah and and in the scuffle yeah one of the bottles tips over and it falls to the ground and it shatters there was a flash of blue flame and a sulfurous smell filled the room from the little heap of broken glass a white vapor rose and followed the draft out the window Curse ye, you rascal! Sounded a voice that seemed faint and far away. Foster, whom I had released when the bottle broke, was crouching against the wall, looking smaller and more shriveled than before. His face was slowly turning greenish-black. Curse ye! Said the voice again, hardly sounding as though it came from his lips. I'm done for... That wood in there was mine. Dominique Slot took it out 200 years ago. 
Oh no! Oh no! I didn't see that coming. Oh wait, yes I did. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, Abel Sexton, Abel Foster begins to decay right in front he of just him. Rots all, right you know. in front of him as his soul escapes. Yeah. So you know, obviously he he was a zombie or he was an undead. Uh, yeah, it turns out he had been immortal. But my favorite part of that is uh, curse you, you rascal. <laughs> <laughs> Could he found a much funny. harsher word? You know, like the guy's just yeah. destroyed. You know, destroyed his his life. I know that's something you say to a kid who's set off fireworks on your porch, not somebody who's just ended your two hundred year immortal existence. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, Gary grabs the other bottle, which is starting to get a little warm. And outside, he hears sliding earth. And when he looks out, he sees that the cross on uh, Vanderhoof's grave has completely fallen. Yep. Bad, bad stuff. So he finally just puts the bottle down and he says. This and he just gets the hell out of there. And uh, as he's running or whatever he's doing to get out of there, he sees a gigantic, loathsome black shadow against the church in the moonlight. Yeah. So the next morning, Hoffman tells a bunch of villagers about what happened to him, but none of them want to go back with him. Yeah, he said, "I want to go check out and see what happened." Uh, you know, why go back? We don't need to go back. Yeah, What's there to see? but there is an old bearded man who's brave enough to say, "Hey, I'll go along with you. Let's go check it out." So they go back to the scene of the crime. They get there. There's no bottle anymore. No bottle. Just gone. the, just the shattered remains of the other bottle in a heap of dust and clothing. And on the heap are some immense footprints. The grave outside is, of course, empty. Empty. No body in there. So the old man and Hoffman, they go, let's burn everything in here. They get all the books and the papers, yep. and they, they torch it all. And they even throw the cross on the fire as an afterthought, which I thought was <laughs> kind of a funny thing to do. The story ends with, Old wives say that now, when the moon is full, there walks about the churchyard a gigantic and bewildered figure clutching a bottle and seeking some unremembered goal. And that's the end. That's the end of the story. It's a little sad, too. Yeah. You know, poor, poor Dominique Vanderhoof. He just kind of got, um, got hosed all of his life, and now he's hosed in the, in the afterlife. He's, you know, he's walking around just trying to remember what he was supposed to do, and he just has, needs to break that bottle, get his soul out. Yeah, I'm a, well, I'm a little, I have questions. I'm a little confused about this story. Yeah. So why did, why did the first Dominique, why did Slot make Abel, why did he take his soul? Well, I think he, I think he was going to make him a minion, like a servant. I mean, that's just what I took out of it. it yeah, he's going to make right. him a servant, and then that's what the the sexton was trying to do. Okay, was he wanted to take Vanderhoof and make him into his minion? Right, but obviously that didn't work out. So this is sort of like the statement of Randolph Carter, where there's this sorcerer who goes into the ground, but he's still alive down there, kind of communicate because because abel keeps talking to the grave so i guess he is communicating with the old the original domini right from um okay so he's sort of his servant on earth and then he tries to make his own servant i'm guessing yeah. i don't know and then but then why did he try to bury him yeah i don't without know his soul? maybe that was part of the magic is you had to bury the body and then he would come up and then you could control him but he didn't seem to be too in control and he was just really drunk so he seems to be yeah. a really bad sorcerer <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. I liked part of the story, but mostly I found it a little lame. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. I thought there's some really good passages in there, and um, just I, I like the mood of it, and I kind of I like the uh-huh. the story. But you're right; it does have a few holes in it. It's not one of my favorites, and it's not really one of Lovecraft's either. This is, uh, yeah, this is Wilfred Blanche Talman's story, and oh, right, right, yeah, uh, Lovecraft kind of did a rewrite on it mm-hmm. they wrote it between june and october of 29 1929 
Talman and Lovecraft became friends back when Lovecraft still lived in Providence before he moved to New York. He had a book of poetry that he wanted to get published, and for some reason he sent it to Lovecraft, I guess, because you know he was in all the amateur journals and things, and he was sort of a name in those circles. Right. So he sent him to that, and, he, and Lovecraft liked his poems, and they just kind of talked and, and became friends. This is the first and only project that they uh, worked together on, and mm -hmm. I guess Talman uh, was a little disappointed in how it turned out. I have a, an exact quote here for you. Uh -huh. This is in Talman's 1973 memoir that he wrote, and this is about his revisions. He did some minor gratuitous editing, particularly of the dialogue. After re-reading it in print, I wish Lovecraft hadn't changed the dialogue, for his use of the dialect was stilted. So, huh, those are my favorite parts of the story. Yeah, I kind of like that stuff too. So you know. So really, really, this is Tallman's story. It's his story, that... and I guess Lovecraft made some pretty serious changes. Um, I think it was uh -huh. in. It wasn't in first person originally, and Lovecraft made it into first person. This is one of the things when doing research about this story. I found out about um, Talman was in this thing called the the Kalman Club that Lovecraft was was a part of. Do you know about this? Right. I've, I, well, I've heard about it, but I don't know exactly. Yeah, basically, um, when in New York, when Lovecraft lived in New York, he got together with uh, a, a group of you know writers, and they were friends. I mean, it wasn't really a literary group; it was just a group of dudes that would get together and hang out. But it included. Uh, Reinhard Kleiner, Everett McNeil, and James Morton. And then mm -hmm. when Lovecraft joined, he got some of his buddies in on the group, Frank Long, George Kirk, and Arthur Leeds. They would just get together on Thursdays usually, but then, you know, I oh, it, Lovecraft was bragging about, because he, he was kind of the guy that sort of kept this thing going, because when he moved uh -huh. to Providence, it sort of fell apart. Right, uh, right. But while, while he was there, Lovecraft bragged about how <laughs> he found this aluminum pail for 49 cents, and he would run to the local delicatessen and get it filled with coffee and then bring it back to his place and then pour it into you know like a like a, a coffee pot like a little teapot and stuff like that because he you know he he was super poor at this time he didn't have any money so he he found the cheapest ways but made it look like it was like really nice coffee and put it in these nice his finest china and stuff talman was a worked for a newspaper and different publishing things and he tried to get lovecraft work a bunch of times and lovecraft just was like, I don't want to be a reporter. And because Lovecraft, you know, traveled occasionally, would write these, uh -huh. you know, really interesting things about, you know, his travels. And Kalman was trying to um, get, he goes, hey, maybe you should, you know, do some, I know this guy, we can get you to do some travel editing and some travel writing and stuff. You know, I think that'd be really cool. Mm -hmm. And Lovecraft's, well, you know, I don't travel as much as I used to. And totally, mm -hmm. you know, blows him off. And then they were going to do a book together. And Talmud was doing all the, the heavy lifting. You know, he went to the publishing right. company, it was Morrow and Company, and was like, hey, I got this novel by H.P. Lovecraft. You know, it'd be really cool. And then Lovecraft died before that ever happened. Oh, so. that's too bad. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't think Lovecraft would have been a great journalist. Even travel writing, which is a little more descriptive, was, is still journalism. I mean, you have to kind of keep it down to yeah. the, the who, what, and where, and that's not exactly his forte. So. Yeah. Um. This story, Two Black Bottles, it got published yeah. in Weird Tales? Yeah, Weird Tales. Uh, it got published in 27, 1927 of August. So, you know, it saw the light of day in Lovecraft's time. So, And yeah. I probably got a little dough for it. Got a little, little money. Kind of unrelated thing. Well, it's somewhat related in that it involves zombies. I went to go see... Stuart Gordon is trying to get a theatrical production of Reanimator going. It's a musical version of it. Yeah. It's just called Reanimator the Musical. And they did a couple of... Uh, they did a couple of staged readings slash singings here in Hollywood, and I got the chance to go to one, and it was really good. It was it really, oh, really? adapted itself. Yeah, it was really good. The music was great. The songs were fun. 
Um, he got together a great little cast to do it. I, I have to say it was somewhat surreal because the bad guy from Ghostbusters, uh, oh, yeah, William huh? Atherton, if, if you know that actor, William Atherton, yeah, yeah. he was also, he was the journalist in Die Hard who... He was the bad uh, guy in Real Genius. That's right. Yeah. He, he was so good at playing those 80s bad guys. And he's been, he's still been, you see him all the time in, in movies and TV. He was in the reading, uh, he was doing the, oh, the bad guy from the movie, the one that looks like John Kerry. I think it's it's Hill. And yeah. then George, yeah, George Went was playing uh, Dr. Dr. Halsey. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Meshack Taylor was in there as well, who was, uh, I, I just know him as the, you know, the black guy from Designing Women, but he oh, was, really? oh, and he was Hollywood in Mannequin as in well. Mannequin, so, yeah. yeah. And, you know, obviously George Went is Norm. And there was a great duet where it was William Atherton and George Went singing about Miskatonic. And it was like these two 80s icons singing about Lovecraft. It was a very surreal experience for me. <laughs> it was a dream come true. It was. He's looking around. He's looking to get some backers for that so that they can mount it over at the Center for Inquiry in, in Hollywood. Right. Yeah. And hopefully they'll get it. They'll get it on stage soon because it was a, it was a real blast. I was amazed at how well it adapted itself to that kind of format. It was very funny. Oh God! I, so, so one of the drawbacks to uh, you know moving away to to England is missing out on the cool Hollywood stuff. Yeah. Although you so we were. We were off for two weeks, and and you did a little traveling. Yeah, I actually just took some time off because my wife was leaving to go. She's doing a Second City show on a cruise ship, and I want to spend more time with her. But it was funny when she was leaving. I was like, "Well, make sure you download and listen to the podcast while you're on the ship, so you know so you can hear my voice." And she says, "Are you crazy? I'm not going to listen to your show while I'm out on the ocean." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's probably for the best, actually. But yeah. you were doing some traveling around England, and didn't uh, you? Yeah, I was down to London a bit, and then uh, we went up to Stratford, and I saw a production of uh, Mort de Arthur, which was with the Royal Shakespeare Company did. That was really flipping cool. I guess that's one of the benefits of living in England, is you get to see that kind of stuff. Didn't you? You were telling me that you went to see this terrible Dracula. Well, I shouldn't. I shouldn't say oh, it was terrible. You went. <laughs> you went to terrible. go see a, uh, the Dracula experience or something. Right, like yeah, that, I went right? to Whitby, uh, which is where in the story Dracula. That's where he mm. lands. Uh, you know, after you know when he comes from Transylvania, he comes to England. Yeah, and yeah. Whitby is where he, he lands, and I believe that's where there's a big abbey, an old abbey, ruined abbey up there, and that's where mm -hmm. he fights. At the end, right? That's when. Um, oh, where they chase him to? Where he's got yeah, his where they chase him to at the end. Hidden. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so it's got a lot of history there, but there's this little, uh, this thing called the Dracula Experience, and it looks like the 1990s <laughs> Dracula. You know, the, when the movie came out. Right, and, right. The Coppola movie. Yeah, the Coppola movie, and it's, uh, it was really bad. It was sort of like I felt like I was at Wisconsin Dells. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Wisconsin Dells was, uh, I used to go there to vacation when I was a kid and it was, you know, kind of cheeseball little wax museums and horror shows yeah. and that kind of thing. So yeah. It was that kind of thing, huh? It was really terrible. Yeah. Uh, except I really enjoyed it. So yeah, it was, it was, it was two pound 50. So, you know, if, if you've got two pound 50 to spare and you want to see a really bad exhibit that is somewhat entertaining, uh, yeah. you know, check that out at Whitby. Sometimes I like that more, you know. I went to a wax museum in St. Louis. It was the worst wax museum I've ever been at in my life, and I had so much fun there. Just the 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 disrepair that they were. They tried to like in the House of Horrors in there. They put some mannequins in there, like trying to trick me. Uh -huh. no, those aren't wax figures. Those are mannequins. Those are store <laughs> mannequins. You can't just draw a mustache on that and call it John Wilkes Booth. You can't do that. The way that uh, the sexton dissolved into nothing reminded me a little bit of Dracula, which reminded me of. Uh, your trip to Whitby, so... Oh, right, yeah. Next week. Yeah, next week's a big one. Next week we have a Pickman's model. That's right. And may have some guests on that show. I'm not sure yet, but uh, it'll be a fun one, definitely. And I want to thank uh, Anthony Tedesco again for reading for us this good week. Good guy. Great reading. Good stuff all around. 
And uh, with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. Pushing his way up through the ground. He's that strong. I got like headed. <laughs> did you really? I did. That was great. I need a second. Yeah. <laughs> 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 hppodcraft.com. <laughs>